Blog Talk Radio. Hi, hi, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I'm so happy that you've joined us today. Today is Monday, October 7th, 2013, so you'll have that frame of reference if you're listening to the show years and years from now, and again, I'm so happy that you've joined us. We have a super guest and a great topic, something I've never talked about on the show before, so if you're a long-time listener, get ready. This is some new stuff, (laughs) but before we get going on that, I have some announcements to make. First of all, my course, Early Speech Language Development, Taking Theory to the Floor, Expanded Edition that's on DVD, is still on pre-sale, mostly because I have been too darn busy to change the price. So you can probably get that at that sale price for the next couple of days if you hurry and beat me in there. Secondly, I want to announce my upcoming live conference dates. I'll be in Baton Rouge, Louisiana next week on Thursday, October 17th, and Friday, October 18th, and there's still room. If you want to join us there, you can register uh, on my website at teachmetotalk.com, and then I'll be in Charleston, West Virginia, on Thursday, November 7th, and Friday, November 8th. So please check out those events if you are close to there and want to join me for a live event. And then lastly, today, I'm going to talk about something new that I'm doing for TeachMeToTalk.com products. This year, earlier in the year, uh, TeachMeToTalk.com or the Laura Mize Group became an official ASHA CEU provider. And the main reason we did that is so that I didn't have to use another group to produce my courses. Now that we've gotten that part going, we want to go back and get all of our previous DVDs approved for ASHA CEU credit. And part of that process is having those projects peer-reviewed. And that would just mean if you've previously watched any of my DVDs, Teach Me to Talk, Teach Me to Listen and Obey 1 and 2, or Teach Me to Talk with Apraxia and Phonological Disorders, I would love to talk to you about being on my peer review panel. And again, there are some qualifications that the American Speech and Hearing Association um, has have established for being one of those peer reviewers. And the main thing is just that you've had significant clinical experience. Now, I've interpreted that as that you've worked 15 years or so, <laughs> but it might also be just the position that you've held. If you've had lots of supervisory experience or been a rehab director or if you've taught at the university level or taught a CEU course or written extensively, I think those would be things that would um, let you have demonstrated your area of clinical expertise. So if that's you and you're interested in doing that, please look at the qualifications um, at teachmetotalk.com in a post called Peer Review Panel. And then send me an email to Laura at teachmetotalk.com, and we can have a little conversation about whether um, having you serve in that capacity on the peer review panel. So I'm so excited about it, and I've heard from lots and lots of podcast listeners. So if you've emailed me about that, thanks so much. And I am going to be getting back to you. And, again, it's been tons of fun to hear from so many people that say they listen to the podcast every week. So, again, thanks so much for that. All right, moving right along. Today we have one of my very favorite bloggers. I read her blog all the time. So, Maria, it's so exciting to talk to you in person. Thank you, Laura. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm really excited about today's show, too. But before we get going with the topic, let, let me let you introduce yourself. I shared with you earlier that a lot of times I forget that, and I, I'm halfway into the show before I say, oh, my gosh, you should tell us where you live and what you do. So I do sure. think it serves as kind of a frame of reference. So tell us about yourself, Maria. My name is Maria Del Duca. I am a speech pathologist. I've been a speech pathologist. If I could talk, a speech pathologist for about 11 years I now. Over that, oh, I stumble <laughs> over that word all the time. It's so funny when I hear somebody else do it because when I think, I'm not the only one. I know. If we can't even say our profession, that's no good, right? <laughs> so, um, I've 
I've worked in a lot of settings over the years. Um, I've worked in schools, early childhood programs, um, hospitals, inpatient, outpatient, and now I have my own mm-hmm. private practice. So I've had a lot of experience in different areas, which is fun. That is fun because, again, you've got those that nice personal reference there where you've kind of done it all as opposed to one setting. So I think that might be one reason I really like all that you like, too, because you can really approach it from all those different positions. Thank you. My um, my private practice is called Communication Station Speech Therapy, mm-hmm. PLLC. Um, people can find my blog on uh, communicationstationspeech.com if they're looking for that. That is great. And we're going to talk about some of the things that you offer on your blog at kind of at the end of the show. The, the main Perfect. topic that we're talking about today is toddler aggression, and you wrote a great article on that. That was for Ashes site. Yes. I write um, a monthly column for Ashes Sphere um, titled Kid Confidential, and Mm -hmm. it's basically all things developmentally appropriate for children. Um, Right. So we talk about all developmental topics, and this recent one from last month was on typical aggression, typical aggressive behaviors in toddlers and preschoolers. And I think moms and dads wonder about this and ask questions about this all the time. Haven't you had that experience when you're working with a toddler and he or she may hit you or usually it's something like snatching a toy away or something Mm -hmm. that just interprets as nasty or rude behavior. And some moms just are mortified when their sweet little baby do that. As a mother, I too have been mortified (laughs) by my own child's behavior. (laughs) Yes. um, When I came out of grad school, they really didn't prepare you for all the counseling you you really are expected to do with parents, at, at least my experience. I don't know what's going on nowadays, but um, it was really a learning process for me to realize, hey, I need to learn what is typical development other than speech and language. You know, I need to learn about picky eating. I need to learn about aggressive behaviors. So that, for me, was actually um, a learning process <laughs> to try to figure that yeah, out. And I, so I do think it's harder, too, if you've not had children yet. And you're trying to counsel um, parents through that and talk about and And this to me, I had two babies. We had our boys between my bachelor's and my master's degree because we moved and all kinds of things happened. So I had a little bit different experience in that I already had these babies when I was learning. And I think that gave me a different perspective because I was right in the throes of doing all of that kind of parenting every day. But there are lots and lots of therapists who aren't moms and or who won't be moms for quite a while. They're just not at that stage of their lives yet. Yet their only, um, I'm going to say it again, frame of reference are their kids on their caseload. And we cannot use kids on our caseload as uh As typical development, yes. Yeah, yes. we need to understand what typical development is to be able to identify it, absolutely. And I was the opposite. I was single for a long time while I worked, and then I met my husband, and after years and years of working, then we had a son. So for me, it's really nice to see how my speech therapy has changed once I became a mom. So Yeah. And I've heard that from a lot of therapists, too. And I used to joke with this OT friend of mine who didn't have any kids, and she got married, gosh, I guess when she was right at 30 or early 30s, and I would just kind of tease her a little bit and say, your whole practice is about to change because when you do this job (laughs) as a mom, it's totally different than, you know, just kind of looking at at children and toddlers from the other side. So I also, yes. you know, everybody has different experiences and different backgrounds and Absolutely. things. And that doesn't mean that our friends who haven't had children aren't qualified to make some recommendations and things about parents, but you have to know what's typical and you have to spend right. some time. Absolutely. And it's not Absolutely. All, yeah, it's not all from a textbook either. So I always think right. that if it's a day volunteer, um, what are some things that you did to get some experience with typically developing kids before you had your son? 
Well, I'll tell you, luckily for me, I was able to participate in a reverse mainstream early childhood um, classroom. What that means is half of the kiddos had IEPs for some reason, and the other half were typically developing. So it was was learning all day every day for those five years, (laughs) which was wonderful because I had great early childhood teachers that were bringing me along with them on their journey, and they were able to just tell me what's typical, what's not typical. Look, that's developmental. You don't need to get worried about that in areas that I was not familiar. So I was very blessed to have that experience. That is good because you could see that every day. But I tell therapists if they're, you know, working in a clinical setting and they're only seeing the kinds of kids who we see for speech-language issues or other developmental issues, you've got to find a way to get yourself around some typically developing toddlers so so that you know whether that be, you know, just befriending some families with young children at, I have volunteered at church forever because, you know, my, I was sharing with you before the show, my children are really old now, you know, 24, 25, 17. <laughs> and so it's hard, really. I mean, you remember big things, but you really forget a lot of that day-to-day stuff. And so yes. seeing a classroom of two-year-olds weekly helped me so much, Um with really determining and remembering, you know, normal versus not so normal. So I, I make that suggestion all the time to therapists that they they find a way to get their foot in the door somewhere so they can get that experience. And aggression or those kinds of behavior issues are a big area where children, you know, there's just a wide variety of what's normal and what's what's acceptable, and so today we're going to talk about that. And, again, nothing can make a mom's, you know, blood pressure rise like thinking (laughs) her child is misbehaving, especially when it's toward another person. So talk about your article, Maria, and your research that you've done on normal toddler aggression. Sure. Um, The first thing I want to say is I found a lot of this great information on the Zero to Three website. That's zero2three.org. It's a nonprofit Mm -hmm. website. It has a number of podcasts on there for any parent or therapist. They offer CEUs for those, some of those podcasts, um, to get more information on all of developmental areas. So a lot of this information came from there. Um, But basically, the one thing that I want parents and therapists that are listening today to think about is there is no child that is thinking beyond themselves. I'm going to hurt you with this toy or I'm going to hurt you by taking this away. They don't have that thought process. This isn't about the other person, whether it be the parent or a child. It isn't about them. It's all about the child themselves. We're egocentric when we're young, right? (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's huge information because sometimes, parents really do think that their children are purposefully manipulating them or and this happens all of the time with expressive language they'll say he's just not talking on purpose he he, Mm -hmm. has decided he's not going to say one word because he knows that will drive me up the wall we have to always stop (laughs) and say to parents that's not it he's not cognitively capable of that yet he can't think like that that's right. No, that's for older, older, older children, and so we have to really teach parents that. But we have to make sure we believe that in our own heart of hearts first, because it's it's pretty easy to somehow get on a toddler when they're being a real stinker. That boy mm-hmm. who's doing this just to get on my last nerve. So that's a super super point. Exactly. We've got to get rid of the stinking thinking, and we need, to, we need to change our thought process. And we need to say, wait a second, this has nothing to do with me. He's not even thinking about me when he's doing this. And if we can do that, it totally changes the way we parent or the way we provide therapy. So that's my first thing. I hope people take that away from this today is that right. the child is not even thinking about us. Well, he doesn't care enough about us to think about us. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's part of the maturation process. And and again, it's not that he came in, you know, that he's being purposefully selfish. He just can't think that way yet because he's not emotionally and cognitively mature enough to 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 think about Mm -hmm. that. 
So, yep. Yeah. The other thing that I want to say before we go into this is that the reason this is important for us to know about typical aggressive behaviors is because this, those behaviors are the beginnings of social skills. If we think about this, you know, a child at, at the age of, you know, one, they're still probably like swatting at mom because they want that toy or if they're breastfeeding, they might be nibbling a little bit, you know, ouch, that hurts, you know. Right. <laughs> um, but what they're doing is they're learning, wait a second, that was mom's reaction to this behavior. This is not a good thing. Okay, now I've learned that. Now I'm going to try something else. And what what we're teaching them is that's not socially appropriate at this time, whatever that exact moment is or that situation is. So we have to keep in mind, every time a child does something that's typically developing, yes, way to go. He might be delayed in another area. Who cares? Way to go. You just took that toy from your friend and you're two and a half. Yes, you're learning social skills. Let's celebrate it. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. And I tell moms that all the time and they say, you know, again, the, the mom who's horrified that her child doesn't know how to share and I always say, look around the next time you're at a social function at a birthday party. Nobody is sharing when they're 18 months. Nobody's exactly. sharing when they're 24 months. That's, that's what they're supposed to do. And so you're right, sometimes we don't celebrate even those less positive milestones like we should. Because right. it does tell because us how Absolutely. Exactly. That's, that, that is such a strong piece for us to know as speech pathologists because we're looking for those appropriate social skills. If a child doesn't care about another child and he's two and a half, he doesn't care if that kid has a toy, then he's never going to learn the repercussions of someone taking his toy or he taking another child's toy. So that's why these things are important. So let's get down to what's what's, what's typical. Okay. Um, Okay. What I have learned, (laughs) again, not a psychologist, but what I've learned in my research is um, up to about one year of age, children are, are again, looking for our reactions to behaviors. They want to know, are they good good reactions, bad reactions? Is this something that I'm going to do again? Is this fun to do? So right. we need to really think about how we're reacting to our kids um, right. to see if that's something we want to diminish or something we want to happen again, that behavior. So babies right. tend to, you know, pull pull mom's hair. They want to get something mm-hmm. from you, so they're going to swat at you, you know, all that stuff that I talked about earlier. Um, again, they you don't want to hurt us. If we think, right, and I was just going to say, but if we think about where babies are cognitively, especially in that last, you know, 9 to 12-month developmental period, there's so much going on cognitively. They're learning yes. in effect. They're learning simple problem solving. And sometimes that mm-hmm. will involve, yeah, some social behaviors that we, again, don't necessarily want to reinforce or see happen all the time, but it is completely natural and completely normal for a child Absolutely. to do those kinds of things. Absolutely. I have a girlfriend right now who was just breastfeeding her son the other day, and she's like, oh, he keeps biting on me. And he's like 10 months old, and I'm going, yes, good job, buddy. <laughs> because typical development, you're on your way. I love it. Right. Um, right. My the son used of, to, oh, let me share ahead. a little example. One of our sons, um, when John, my husband needs glasses, wears contacts now, but then he wore glasses, and our son was so intent on always pulling glasses off my oh, husband. Yes. And then, oh. Yeah, he really wanted to see that and then so try to fun. get him back on. And yeah, mm-hmm. and again, I didn't appreciate that, and neither did Johnny like we should have. <laughs> and then when he realized I didn't wear glasses, he constantly would touch my eyes, and I got he scratched mm, my cornea. Interesting. Yeah, but I always yes. thought, you know, this is when he's like about 10 months old. You know, he's really, and, you know, this is when you're learning body parts and you're playing all those fun little games, too. Yeah. But, again, yep. I appreciate it like I would now with yeah. thinking, you know, that, that's what he's doing, just that, that normal kind of exploration there. And he's he's making associations and he's learning things. But it's, it's annoying. <laughs> yeah. I remember when my son 
sunglasses were like the best toy to bring to church because boy did you play with them on my face off my face on dad's face you know for for an hour right yes Church is not fantastic. <laughs> so, so use those use those little games, moms and dads out there. We want them to know yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Even if it annoys you, they're always learning. Think about that. They're always learning. So, um, okay, between the ages of one and two, they talk a lot about how um, toddlers are very impulsive, clearly. Um, they have a thought in their head. They want something. They're going to grab it, they're going to kick you, they're going to hit you, they're going to pull it away from you because that's what they want. It's not about you having right. a toy. It's not about hurting your feelings because they don't really even think of you as someone yeah. that could probably even get hurt. It's just about, oh, right. I like that shiny toy. I'm going to take it. It's not about right. the other kid when you go to a play day and your son pushes the other kid over. Oops. You know? <laughs> it's yeah. not about that. It's yeah. just that they're impulsive and that's what they want. So, again, it's just something that's very typical. You're going to expect this to happen. And what um, the researchers are saying is that these things you'll see at, like, spurts, maybe a couple months at a time. Then they'll kind of calm down, and then they might do it again after a couple months at a time. (laughs) So that's what you're looking for is the fluctuation. As long as there's fluctuation, you know there's growth. You know there's maturation. So... um, yeah, and a and lot of parents say the half years are terrible, you know, <laughs> half years, know. half your birthdays, you know. <laughs> so I know, that, it's just that cyclical development. I mean, that's really yep. what's going on there. Yeah. If you're yeah. seeing that, that's a great indication that your child is, is right along the right path. So, You know, and I want to remind our listeners of, of something, too. We're taught when you're giving these age ranges, this is what we're talking about we're talking about chronological ages, but we're really yes. talking about developmental ages. So even if you have a developmentally delayed child who, or a child with developmental delays who's older, maybe four, developmentally they're still in that 18-month to two-year range, this is still the kind of stuff that you're going to see, even though they're chronologically older than that. So as therapists, we right. think about that all the time, but we don't always remind parents of that. And so if we, we need to think about doing that, and parents who are listening need to think about that too. And even typically developing children who might not have had experiences. For example, my own right. son is an only child, so I didn't right. start to see him pulling and taking toys away from other kids until he was almost two nine, two years, nine months. Because right. he really didn't have to share before then, you know, right. even though we went to play groups, he didn't really care, you know. So right. I think as a parent, you have to really take all these ages and go, oh, my gosh, my child's not doing this at this age. No, just take, relax, you know, take a right. step back. These are huge, huge ranges um, right. in age at the, uh, of development at this time. So we just need to... All we're looking for is are they on the right path? That's all. It doesn't matter exactly. if they're not exactly 24 months when they're showing this or whatever. So, exactly. Um, and let's see, two to three years, we think our kids are, are getting so much better because they're talking so much more. They could even tell yeah. us, you know, what is the rule? I don't take toys away from my friends, you know, and then you see them go and take toys away from their friends. So. <laughs> So we have to take a step back and say, yes, our kids are much more verbal. They are expressing themselves. They can tell you what the rule is, but it hasn't changed their impulsivity. They just aren't mature enough to stop their action midway and say, oh, my gosh, this is not the right thing to do. You know, so we can't stress out and yell at them. We just, you know, got to go in and figure out how to diffuse the situation. That's the goal. Using the situation right. and moving on. <laughs> right. So and we and there are some. You're going to talk about some other strategies too, but I think it's so important at the very beginning to just realize these things are something that all children do, not yes. just kids with developmental yes. issues, not just kids who are bad seeds, as some parents like to say, or whatever. It's, uh, we see this even in very compliant children. We see it in mm-hmm. children who are pretty low back. That's why it's such a yep. surprise. Sometimes they'll say, she's normally so good. I just don't understand. Right. You know, and that can right. really 
make a parent overly concerned about these kinds of things. But your point earlier about it being developmentally appropriate, that, that's the kind of thing we need to say to parents, is really reassure them that, you know, we see this kind of thing and this actually means there's maturity and development going on. Exactly, exactly. And we need to allow ourselves as parents to not feel pressure to parent in front of other parents. For example, if I'm embarrassed by my child's behavior, I don't need to, you know, take it up to take it up a notch and stress overly uh, stress out because I'm in front of another parent to show that parent I'm a good parent. I'm going to take care of this. Right. It doesn't have to be that way. You know, yeah, I, know. <laughs> well, I know we're all judgmental of each other. You know, I know. <laughs> so we need to just take all... a step back and just let it go. You know, let's just parent the best way we can for our own kids and not worry about anybody well, else. And parents <laughs> do. It is easy as a mom. We feel like that every single thing your child does reflects on you, or, or well on you. And a lot of times, you know, those things just, again, have nothing to do with us at all. <laughs> right. Just, just totally out of our control. So. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So I guess all right, a couple things. Go ahead. Okay. So I was going to say, move, let's move on and talk about, um, well, what were you going to talk about? Maria. I was going to say we can talk about um, some of the strategies we can do for that, our kiddos when they're having these right. these issues. The first thing that is suggested is we need to understand why our kiddos are um, exhibiting these aggressive behaviors. Is it for a particular purpose, or maybe they're just hungry and tired? We don't know. We got to watch, and then we need to pay attention to how we respond to them. Are we? calming them down and moving them on, redirecting them to something different, or are we escalating the situation? So right. those are the first things we need to do is observe our child, watch what happens before a behavior occurs, an aggressive behavior, watch what happens after an aggressive behavior occurs, try to figure out what the child's purpose was for that behavior and how we responded to that. That's and I think one. that first point, yeah, I think I think those are excellent points. And I think so many times our little guys – with speech language delay often have other issues going on as well with those little fragile sensory systems and so they really can be reacting to something externally that we have to do a pretty good job of interpreting. I mean and it might be something as simple as gosh he hasn't eaten in three hours, he's probably hungry yep. or yep. he's <laughs> wet or he's getting sick or he's getting a tooth and he's just more on edge because it hurts and maybe he needs a pain reliever there or whatever. We need to be really, really careful about that. And then, again, our little friends that I refer to with, with those really sensitive sensory systems, sometimes we have to really look at what's going on around that child that Absolutely. would um, create those kinds of behaviors, too. If there's too much noise or if he, uh, even with our our um, our little guys who are under reactors, sometimes their little pendulum can swing so far the other way. We we know that it takes so much um, activity to Stimulation. kind of go with mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. that sometimes we go too far with that and then they're, they're you know, out of control because we've kind of... They're beyond the point of no return. <laughs> right. We need right, to bring them back. Right. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And, and the one thing I want to say oh, to parents out there that are listening to this, if your son or daughter didn't sleep well the night before or if they didn't eat a good breakfast or if something out of the ordinary happened, please tell your teacher, tell your preschool teacher or tell your speech pathologist or tell your daycare provider because if we know that coming into the situation, we are not going to have the expectations that we typically have for your child. We're going to understand that they might be fragile in those moments. And even though it might not seem like something that's very important to you, it really is a big deal to kids, and it's a to- it's a big deal for us to be able to approach it in a different way. It is, and you know, sometimes parents will forget things too. They'll they'll say things like, "Oh gosh, you know, I'll see a kid kind of midday or early afternoon, and and he's just not himself." And I'll have to say to mom, "What happened?" And she'll say, "Well, he got immunizations today." Or mm-hmm. you know, something like or that. Or he didn't take a nap. Or <laughs> right, right. And you're like, so oh, we, I wish I would have known that 30 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, 
Perhaps you could have rescheduled this appointment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or just not stress but them out have, to the point where, you know, exactly. it's a lower-key day. Yeah, it's a lower-key yeah. day. Yeah. And like I said, as adults, we adjust our expectations based on what we know is going on. Excellent point. Right. Now, the second point was so important, too. Sometimes it really is adult who, because they've tried to intervene, they've actually made the situation a lot worse than if they right. could have stepped back a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. One thing that I have learned working with early childhood educators is they've taught me, you know what, it's okay to not intervene for a few seconds. Let's see how this right. child learns. How does he negotiate, he or she, negotiate themselves in this situation? Oh, Johnny just pulled a toy from little Susie, and little Susie's crying. And he's watching little Susie because he's trying to figure out, hey, did I just do that? Did I cause that to happen? (laughs) And maybe he's smiling because that's neat. Oh, my gosh, I just did that. I just made that happen. It's not, oh, he's smiling because he went, oh, I stuck it to little Susie, you know. I made that happen. And then little Susie has had it not, so she takes that fire truck back and she says, that's mine, you know. Hey, look what just happened, natural consequence. And now Johnny's right. learned, I'm not going to mess with Susie when she's playing with that fire truck. So it right. is okay for us to allow kids to negotiate for a few minutes. Let's let them learn from each other if we can. Well, that's my first point. Too, I, I, I think that's great. And I think, too, we never really know what would have happened if we are always jumping in to kind of rescue quickly than we should. And I'm not saying that we're going to let, you know, kid A beat the tar out of kid B before we step in and do anything, but we do want to see what would happen and how they react to each other because if we're always jumping in, again, we we don't know what's working and what's not working and if Right, and we don't know if the child would have just learned by the the natural consequence of the moment, and we wouldn't have to then eventually teach that skill down the line because he's already learned it. So that's one thing. Um, Another thing we need to do when we're thinking about our behaviors, are we jumping in too quickly, or when we are jumping in, are we putting our anxiety and stress on for a child in that moment? You know, uh, I am... I'm guilty as a mom. I've done it. <laughs> you know? yeah, I've done yeah. it. <laughs> so I'm not preaching here. I'm just saying we've all done it. But if we can look at ourselves and go, okay, let's learn from this situation. Next time right. I want to do this a little differently. Next time I want to get down on my hands and knees. I want to look my son in the eye. And I want to say in a very calm, quiet voice, you know, what happened? Why do you think that happened? <laughs> you know? Right. And right. Than things, maybe next right. time we could try something different. What do you think we could try that's different? Um, and, of right. course, we you have to use the type of language where your child is functioning. So that's the right. other thing, too, is if your child can't ask those questions, then you want to give them the words. I see that you were feeling angry because... Johnny took your toys, Susie. I see that. I can see that because you're crying and telling me that. So you're naming the emotion. You're giving the child the words, what happened. And then you're going to help them problem solve through to come up with a different situation, a different um, solution. So, Yeah, and I think adjusting our language, yeah, adjusting our language is huge. And adjust keeping our our own emotions in check. And, you know, I'll – I'm a verbal person, and I'm pretty hyper at times, and I know, you know, and I hate to admit this on air, but I'm going to anyway, you know, I'm a little bit of a screamer when things are really out of control. And, you know, that, again, for, for other moms who have that flaw as well, you know, so many yep. times that reaction is what just set it off. And then when we're so angry, we're not ever using language that's on the child's uh, developmental level. And, you know, we go into those long 15-cent paragraphs where we're talking about, you know, all of these things that really don't make much sense at all to the child that we're communicating with. So, so, you know, that's a great, great, great point. And as therapists, we may have to model that for parents during sessions. And that's uncomfortable because you don't really want to step in and help a mom parent when she's trying to do that. 
but a lot of times when a mom is when things are happening and a mom is feeling embarrassed or again yep. out of control or whatever, you know, that's when we need to step in and say, Hey, listen, this is what I would do or say this or you know, at at, at this very moment you're probably using tons of language that he doesn't understand. So let me show you what I would do and let's talk about how we can make this make more sense to him so that he can respond appropriately. Right, and it may be uncomfortable for us as therapists, but really what we're doing is providing freedom to that parent that, oh, I don't have to respond this way. There's a whole other way that I can respond, and my child will still learn the same lesson. So we're we're giving them freedom. Oh, it feels so great to feel like a good mom after that, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, taking the pressure off. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. But it is uncomfortable, especially if you're a younger therapist and don't have the parenting experience and you're feeling like, oh, should I step in here or not? Anytime you right. can help a mom feel better about what she's doing, that that's just your green light. You have to do that. Yep. You have to help moms through that situation. Yep. And I tend to say to parents, this is a little trick I learned. Like, that's what I say. Yeah. <laughs> this is a little trick I yeah. learned. And then I just, you know, go ahead and do it. And and a lot of times parents are just like, oh, okay, you know. Yeah. I don't have to get yeah. so upset. So, of course, you know, everyone always says, stay calm. But when you're with your child 24-7, you know, when your husband just called and you forgot to pick up the dry cleaning and he's upset, you don't have to get dinner on, I get it. You're not going to be calm. I get it. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, and, if you can change yeah. how you respond one time a day, great, because the more you do it, the more reinforcing it's going to be, and you're going to end up changing exactly. how you behave with your child every day. So Exactly. It's great advice. Baby steps. Baby steps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, you know, also just giving your child the words for things is a huge um, help. Because when your child is two and they don't know what these emotions are, they just know that they're feeling something, you have to give them the word. You have to tell them, this is how you're feeling. I see that you're feeling this way because you're doing this and this and this. So it really is freeing when your son or daughter looks at you and goes, yes, I am. Yes. You might just see them start crying right away. (laughs) I know. And I don't. I've taught lots of kids the word mad. You know, I'm mad. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it does when we can give a kid a verbal way to express that. Not that we won't see any of these kinds of aggressive things, but it does give them a starting point, and it certainly gives a parent a place to kind of talk to them about those things too. So I like teaching those emotion words. Now, again, if you have a nonverbal child who's not saying much of anything he's probably not going to imitate i'm mad before right. he imitates but other depending on what his um communication system is if you're using pictures you put emotion pictures up there if you're using right. signs you use right. those signs i've done that with kids yeah. and it I totally see. changes their behavior when they realize i can express something that i'm feeling right and we want to make sure we also express the positive ones too, because I was—I've yeah. learned that the hard way as a therapist. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to make sure when our kids are happy, yes, we want to say, "Oh, I see you're so happy today," you know. Yeah. Versus you're so sad or you're so mad. I mean, clearly, I think mad's like the first one they all find figure out anyway, right? I think so too because it's so emotional. But you know, that's such yep. a good point. And then even if the kid's not saying it, or even if he's not able to find it or use the picture yet, they have to learn that concept receptively first so it's great just to go ahead and lay that foundation and give them those words so i hope absolutely and that's the beginning of teaching coping skills because once you can identify the emotion then you can eventually teach the child what do i do when i feel this way now that i know what mad feels like what do i do and that's another recommendation that um i found when i was researching this information is you know they want you to advocate for kids to be able to find a safe and healthy way to cope with stress or anxiety or anger. So maybe the child needs to take a break. Maybe the child needs to go play with a different toy. Maybe he needs to be removed from that particular setting and go do something else and get sensory input. It just depends on every child's different. Every moment is different. But it allows kids to begin to identify 
something isn't right here. I'm feeling this way. Now I know I need to do something different. Maybe I need to take some breaths. Maybe I need to do something else. So it's giving children the freedom to learn how to cope as well. Yeah, I think those are huge, huge things that we need to help parents see too. And really, again, things that we model in sessions. And sometimes we do not do a good job of that because when a child is clearly out of control, we still try to make them finish their therapy task anyway. Or we right. still try to, to try to make them kind of push through it, and that's not always our best life. Yes. Let's talk, Sometimes let's talk really, about that for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> it is okay. Yeah. Let's throw out the lesson plan. Let's throw out the speech therapy yeah. plan. It's okay to just stop doing what we're doing, get rid of the data, and start over. It's okay. You have the freedom that's to do it great. because, yes, Children are going to need to learn how to persevere, not at the age of two, not at the age of three. So we're safe. We can just throw that all out, and we can do something totally different. And if a child is in that moment of the point of no return, the, the temper tantrum or the meltdown or whatever you would like to call it, they are not learning from you at that moment. So we need to make sure... Yeah. I mean, if we, if I think about the number of times I've gotten mad at my husband, I'm certainly not learning from him when I'm yelling at him. <laughs> well, and a, but a lot of times therapists, really, we do not do a good job of modeling this for parents. We don't because we think, oh, you're going to finish that puzzle. Or, no, mm-hmm. you're picking up these blocks. When right. really the lesson ought to be, let's transition to something where I can calm down. Yep. Get, get That's control the goal. here rather yep. And and that's why things escalate so many times in therapy sessions, too. We're not jumping in with the appropriate life strategy or emotional strategy. We're still trying to make that speech-language goal. When most of the time in that kind of situation, the, the communication goal really doesn't matter as opposed right. to helping that kid maintain or learn how to self-regulate and rather than, right. no, I have to throw a holy fit before you let me stop doing this activity and which you know that I hate and so we have to um, <laughs> we have to really think about that. We we have to think that, about it because we we're teaching kids and parents the wrong thing when we constantly right. push through some of those things. Yeah. If we can vision twenty years down the line where we want this child to be, I think we all want our kids, whether it's our own personal kids or our kids on our caseload, we want them to be as independent and as functional as possible. And the only way to right. do that is to give them the tools to be independent right. and functional. So right. maybe our goal is not to say that sound correctly ten times or whatever it is that our right. goal is that day. Maybe it's not to request any more puzzle pieces because that kid's so sick of puzzles, he's done, he's over right. it. Maybe our goal, Maybe our goal is just to do something completely different. Let a child have a little bit of control. Let him learn how to calm himself right. down. And you're going to see language that you haven't seen before because exactly. that child has been able to get himself back to an alert, settled state. Well, I think that self-regulation piece is so important, too. And I, um, that's such an important thing that um, you're a four-time person, aren't you, Maria? Didn't I read that you did four-time training? Oh, I um, I completed the Dr. Greenspan professional course on floor time. Right. Okay. And, and here's where I'm going with that. Dr. Greenspan was the first person that I ever read that said sometimes you just need to stop an activity. And when a child yep. is really seeming out of control, guess what? He is. And mm-hmm. a lot again, a lot of therapists do miss that opportunity, or they 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 just you're doing it wrong when they're and when I don't they're taking think that it's, in the middle of that. Yeah. However, I feel like at least for myself and my experience, it was trained in grad school. You've got to show because you're being observed through that window. You need to show that you finished that lesson and you need to show your data. Yeah. So I almost yeah. feel like we've been trained monkeys in that sense. And we come out of grad school thinking that, oh, it's all about data. It's all about the goal. When really it's about life skills. And if we can free ourselves from thinking that way and go, oh, look at what this child has learned today just through play, we become totally different therapists. So love Dr. Greenspan. Love all of his work. 
I'm a big fan. <laughs> I know, me too. And I think that, too, that here's the other thing that I always try to tell people about communicating. And a lot of times moms will say this. They'll say, well, you know, now the PT just kind of keeps going when this kind of thing happens. And, and I say, you know, they can do their passive range of motion exercises. They can do all stretching. They can do they, – they may not – Maybe they shouldn't persist in that activity when a child is that upset. I don't know that I would if I were a PT. However, we as speech pathologists and developmental interventionists need to really not take that stand in that approach, and we need to value that whole self-regulation piece above any right. other goal. And, and right, really and we need to ask parents, yeah. if you were telling me in this moment, I don't want to do this, I don't feel comfortable with this, wouldn't you want me to listen to you? Right. And if the answer is yes, then that's exactly what your child's telling me right now. They're telling me. They don't right. feel comfortable. It, it isn't something that's working for them. So I need to listen to them. I need to watch their body language. I need to listen to their voice. When I, I used to have a school-age kiddo who was on um, the autism spectrum, and every time his voice would go up to the high pitch, that's when we knew there was going to be there was going to be a problem if we didn't stop right, right there and change what we were doing. So it's right. also about learning the signs of our children, learning what they're trying right. to tell us. So if we can be really good investigators, we're going to be really great therapists. I think so too, and we can head off so many of these things that 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 people talk about or behavior problems or whatever. A lot of times those things happen because we've really missed a child's signals, and so we have to right. back up and. And be able to look at that and, and yeah, and, and really that situation along. So great, great, great tips. Let's talk a little bit about, though, when things aren't so normal. I think there was a great statistic that you quoted in your article, Maria. I'm, I'm, sort, I'm flipping through or scrolling at now um, that Susan Camp- yeah. Dr. Susan Campbell Yay, yes, Dr. Percentage. Susan Campbell is the author of a great book, Behavior Problem, Problems in, Ch- in Preschool, and she talks about with preschool-age children, she says probably 95%, 95% of those behaviors are actually within normal limits. They're typically developing aggressive behaviors when we look at toddlers okay. and when we look at preschoolers. Mm-hmm. So think about that, parents. 95% are within right. normal limits. Right. Ah, doesn't that make yeah, you feel really? so much better? Get that stress out. <laughs> the only times that parents should really be concerned is if they are not seeing those fluctuations, like we had talked about, where maybe it gets really bad and in a couple months it gets better. Um, if they're seeing those persistent behaviors or they're seeing that, that those behaviors are escalating to be even more harmful for their child or for other people, that's when yeah. the parent really needs to start going out there and seeking some more additional referrals. Um, to from their yeah. pediatrician to whomever, whatever professional they feel is appropriate, you know. Um, I think so because we're so lucky in our area. We have lots of great, great psychologists who specialize in very young children. And so that would be an appropriate referral sometimes in right. occupational therapists. Is that what, is it that really point? depends on what the child's underlying right. issue is. Absolutely. If, if you are suspecting sensory issues, you have to contact an occupational therapist that has sensory integration experience. They don't have to necessarily be certified because there are some areas like oh. the area that I'm in currently where there's just not a lot of certified occupational therapists, but there are therapists who have had 12 years of experience. Great. Sign my right. kiddo up, yeah. you know. Um, exactly. So you really... As as therapists, we have to look at these signs and say, wait a second, I think this child is reacting because he's overstimulated or understimulated. Then that occupational right. therapist referral would be appropriate. If we feel yeah. that it is um, aggression that's uncontrollable or we can't seem to find the precursor to right. that behavior and that aggressive behavior seems to continue and it's not until maybe mom physically removes that child or the child stops punching you, well, then maybe we need a child psychologist to be looking at this and seeing are there other issues. So it really depends on what you're seeing as a therapist to be able to make the appropriate referral. Exactly. I think self-injurious behavior when a kid does a lot of headbanging or biting himself or anything like that, we always want to take those things really, really 
seriously, too. And so many of our little friends who are on the autism spectrum have those kinds of things. You know, they're underlying sensory issues, Mm -hmm. underlying, um, you know, whatever you want to call it. And we certainly need right. to address that. And that would be a circumstance where we want to get another person on the team and another look. The other kinds of things, too, um, as children get older, their red flags really are when they are aggressive, really aggressive in pretend play. Now, that doesn't mean that your child wants to be a ninja for Halloween and you're going to call the psychologist. Right. You know, that, we're not talking about right. that kind of normal. <laughs> and a lot of times you now people are so politically correct and so worried about that. They really worry about normal little right. boys. Right, Little boys with, who are very typically developing, you know, who use a stick as a gun or a spoon as a yep. sword, and then they get so worried. Oh, that's normal. It's just going to be when it kind of tips over the edge when everything is about hurting someone else and stuff. And, again, I'm talking about older preschoolers. I'm not really talking about toddlers, too. That's when you would want to take a second look, too, not just um, over something so innocent. I have a a sweet friend who's a speech pathologist who listens to the show, and I thought it was so cute several weeks ago when she posted it on Facebook. She said, "My, my little boy who's three, wants to be the big bad wolf for Halloween. Should I be worried? You know, <laughs> and she was kidding, and it was a fun joke. Right. But a lot of times people go so far the other way, too, with really worrying about, especially little boys, worrying right. about that kind of thing. So you have to kind of look at how pervasive it is in a, in a child's life. If it's 24-7 and you don't really get a respite from it, and, you're you know, so many people are kind of worried about that child, that's the point when you would really think, I mean, another set of eyes on this kiddo with me. Right. Is there a preoccupation for this particular topic of violence, you know? That's when you become worried. Or is there a disconnect between when the child does act aggressively to another child and they don't have that response where they seem to understand that that other child is hurt? I mean, even, even typically developing children who might slap or hit another child or pinch another child or whatever, when they're talked to about it, that you can see there's remorse. You can see that they're upset. You can see yeah. that they're frustrated. If there seems to be no response, no emotional response or emotional connection, that's when we really need to be a little bit worried because that means that that child is not connecting that behavior. Even though it was an impulsive right. behavior and that's appropriate for it to be impulsive, there still should be some type of an emotional connect when you see a four-year-old doing that. You know, that's an issue, you know. <laughs> Even when you exactly. see a three-year-old doing it, you know, a two-year-old's not going to get it. But they're going to watch. Wow. They're going to look at that child, and they're going to kind of stop and stare. They might smile if the child laughs, crying, you know. But they have some type of a, a response. If you're seeing There's a four-year-old a having that response, then we need, to be, we need to be a little worried about that. And that's exactly. all of our realm. All of our scope of practice, we got to just refer and on. And we need somebody else. You're exactly right. I had a friend, too. This is a long, long time ago. And I, I just saw her last week and asked her about her little boy. She, I remember one time so clearly sitting in a group of moms, and she was saying, my son destroys his room when he's mad at us. And so many of the other moms were going, oh, that's normal. My, my children make a real mess when they play, too. And I'm sitting there looking at her saying, tell me more about that. What did she do? And right. I know that's just a therapist in me. But, you know, mm-hmm. really asking a mom, too, and talking about these things and figuring out, not just assuming that she's what she's meaning without really knowing what's going on. And, again, we as therapists, we're trying to do that. Our brains work that way, you know, when we're right. sleeping. We're analyzing yeah. what's going on. We're trying to solve puzzles when we're sleeping. This is right. true. I wake up in right. the middle of the night and write stuff down. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Me too. But we do need and to I really think... talk to moms and dads and really kind of help them decide, yes. you know, when something is within that that realm of normal and when it's not and address right. it and might be a appropriate referral. And it's okay to spend half of a therapy session talking about that with a parent. It's okay. It's okay to just stop taking data and let's just figure out if what's happening at home is typical behavior. It's all right to spend that time because counseling and education is part of what we need to be doing as speech pathologists. And if we're not, then we're missing a huge part of our job and it's such a rich part. Oh, I love when I talk to parents and (laughs) educate and train. I mean, that's just because you know that they're going to go home and do it. You know they're going to carry on. And they need, so. uh, they just need some better ideas. And so much of the time, too, we're, the pathologists, 
we're a parent's first line of contact. They see us more than they see yes. the pediatrician. They see us more yes. than maybe another professional on their child's team. And, and because we all usually are really pretty good communicators, they often feel like um, they can talk to us about some of these things right. that aren't necessarily outside of uh, a speech language or a communication issue too. So we need to be open to that and um, aware of that. And again, like you said, so appreciative that 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 we get to do this cool job. And that that's part yes, of what we do. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, I agree, Maria. We have five minutes left. I don't want to end the show without you talking about Communication Station and all the cool things you're doing over there, and especially. This project that you have that's really piqued my interest with your um, autism review. Talk about talk about communication station, and then especially I want you to finish up talking about that product. Okay, great. Um, well, I started communication station when we moved. My husband's in the military, so we move around a lot, and we moved down to Arizona. And I was really, really missing working with my kiddos. So I started this little tiny blog, and it kind of exploded, which is great. Um, so yeah. now they can we find it on <laughs> – what's that? I said I love it when that happens. I felt that way, too, with my website. You think nobody's reading it but your best friend and your mom, and then you figure I, it out. Exactly. All over and I don't world. even know if my mom reads it, to be honest. You know, she's had eight kids. <laughs> she doesn't need to read about speech therapy. <laughs> so – so um, anyway, it, it's been a really nice journey. I've been able to connect with a lot of parents, and we talk about all things speech pathology related. Every Tuesday I have a Tip Tuesday blog post, so I talk about research or educational information or, or speech therapy tips or whatever. Every Friday, it's Freebie Friday, so I share a material that I might have made for one of my kiddos. It's almost always something that I've made for one of my clients, so that will be up there, and you guys can find that. And I just recently opened an online store with some great products. And my very favorite one right now is um, my <clears throat> eliciting language in preverbal children on the autism spectrum. So mm -hmm. I always like to use the word preverbal because I know these kids are going to talk. I know it. That's my that is my position. I'm standing by it. I <laughs> always That's like a the positive. That's a great way to look at that. That's a great way to look at that, Maria. And I'm going to say not that now. They're not preverbal. Preverbal. Yes. I love it. Preverbal. Yes. It's just it makes you feel good when you can say to a parent, It's okay. They're just preverbal right now. It's all right. We're gonna yeah. be positive and we're gonna up the bar and that's what we're gonna do. So this particular product is a sixty four page um product where I look at and review both behavioral and naturalistic types of therapy techniques that have been used on children with on the, on the autism spectrum. So I look at the research supporting some of these behaviors um, or these techniques, and also I add the limitations to some of these research. So, I mean, really the key is, of course, we want to stay in our scope of practice, <laughs> but right. we also want to see a child as an individual, but as a whole. So we right. need to make sure that we're treating that child as a whole, and that's really the key is making sure every child's different. So one technique yeah, that I work well, on one kiddo might not work on somebody else. So we need to right. have a bag of tricks. And well, right now I think it's a nice, Yeah, I can't wait to look at that because I think it's a nice uh, summary, especially for those of us who teach other people um, and who are always kind of looking at, really, where's the evidence here? Let's look at that, you know, evidence-based practice. Yes. Where you yes. pulled all that together. So I was excited about seeing that. I can't wait to take a look at it. Yes, and really this has been a culmination of 10 years of experience of myself working with mm -hmm. autism spectrum right. um, children, so children on the autism spectrum. So, I mean, it's just – it's just for us to have an arsenal, for us to be able to come out of grad school or people who aren't familiar with autism or people who have a bag of tricks and they're just not working for their kids right now. It's for us right. to have a number of options and that we can understand what is the theoretical framework behind this versus this technique versus another technique. Why wouldn't this technique work for my kiddo right now? Oh, because he responds to praise or, oh, he responds to this. Right. Well, you're not going to sit him down and do an ABA type program if your child is right. responding to different types. And I know I, I might get a little bit of backlash saying that, but the, the point that's is okay. you I, need to look at the okay. child individually I, 
and provide the appropriate therapy. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, gosh, don't even worry about that on this regular listener knows. I was going to say, whatever I think, and then whatever happens, happens after that. So, yeah, no, no backlash. No. Yeah, well, I can't wait to take a look at that. I think it's going to be a super, super resource. And you see older kids as well, Maria, and has some yes. things too, which would be beyond teachmetotalk.com. Um, stage and lots of people ask me, what's a website that I can use? You know, I'm done with all your stuff, Laura. I'm, we're finished. We're, <laughs> he's really talking. I need that level. So then come over to my website, communicationstationspeech.com. Yeah. Come on yeah, over. I love it. I love it. I think it's a great, great resource. Maria, thank you so much for being such a great guest today. I have so enjoyed our hour. I can't believe it's already up. I hope that you I will know, come back. I know. That was back. fast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this was come, wonderful. Oh, you're so welcome, and I hope I can have you back, and we'll talk about something else equally interesting next time. Absolutely. That sounds great. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you, Laura. You All too. right. Next week, okay, Week show. We're going to have Sharika back on for Barbados because she's done a super autism project that I just love. So she's going to share that with lots and lots of classroom and good experience. So I hope you'll be for that. And